Of course, I know I can use like my phone technically, but I was wondering if that's uh, not um, the sound bite I meant. But yeah, okay. Well, this is uh, the first episode of a show that doesn't have a name yet. Our <laughs> podcast is called Localization Today, and it just has the daily news. And now we're wanting to do an end of the week roundup. Uh, which is an overused word. Possibly with your background in journalism, you might be able to uh, help me find a name for the show. Man, okay, I wasn't expecting this. A name for the show, it's a lot of pressure. I don't know, something around the multilingual news center. No, that sounds also stupid. Language lifeline. I like that, <laughs> yeah, that's much better. This is localization today. Every week we look back on the news from multilingual.com with a language industry specialist. What stood out? What are notable trends? How can we predict what is going to happen next? I am your host, Marjolein Groot-Nibbling, publisher of Multilingual Magazine. My guest today is Sarah Hickey, VP of Research at NIMSI Insights. Maybe I can think of something else with more time. I get better with time, like wine. And maybe wine helps me also to be more well, creative. It's uh, it's closer to wine time where you are. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, six in the evening for me now. Uh, we're just recording. We're just voice recording right now. So I'm noticing, I know that I showed up uh, not looking super sharp today. I just put on a sweater because it's freezing in North Idaho. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing your customary bright red lips, so it's kind of <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's kind of nice to only do an audio uh, recording versus always having to be on yeah camera, which we both do a lot. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Today was a really like I've had so many briefings in the last um, few weeks, especially during the NIMSI 100. Uh, we talked to so many people in the industry. Like I had no no calls. This is my only call today, and. Um, <laughs> Um, my hair looks terrible. I'm in a really cozy flannel shirt that I yes. love. It's so warm, and it, like it, it also looks weird because it sort of matches my. Um, it the does. My head. <laughs> so I'm camouflaged against my bed sheets. Um, but yeah, I'm very yeah. comfortable. <laughs> We're going to start by talking a little bit about an article that you wrote this week that is about the largest LSP that has broken the billion dollar barrier. Yeah. That's right. This was the hot news that actually um, heard about it last week. Um, yeah, that TransPerfect, who has been the largest LSP, so basically the leader in the industry for many years now, um, they have finally broken the billion-dollar barrier in the industry as the first wow. company in the industry to do that. Yeah, which is really impressive. And it has also allowed them to solidify their position as the leader in the industry again, which was being a little bit threatened by RWS after the acquisition yes. of SDL last year. Of course, yes, yes. Yes, last year SDL and RWS had fourth and fifth place uh, with SDL at 480 million, RWS at 456. Those joining forces would uh, have you anticipate that they would be the first ones breaking the billion dollar barrier. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually what we kind of predicted last year as well. Or we said that they are expected to break the billion dollar barrier this year. 
which didn't happen, even though they're close. Uh, they're at 955.3 million. So That's very, close. very close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, didn't quite make it. I think in parts as well from what I've read from their financial report is that, of course, after such a major acquisition, there's a lot of work to be done when it comes to the integration of staff and uh, clients and maybe the technology. And I assume that they spent a lot of time on that. And that was kind of being indicated in their financial report as well. Absolutely. And it, it takes a lot to merge two big companies like that. And as you mentioned, there's a new CEO there as well. So changes take time. I, I speak a little, from some experience, you know, we had uh, a merger here about a year and a half ago, and it's taken us about a year and a half to get everything sorted out and get rolling and, and see the growth. Uh, there's always a yeah. lag between effort and then actual growth. Exactly. And also forget about all the practical logistics, right? Then there's also the culture element, mm -hmm. like two cultures coming together, which is something that I know people are aware of, but I think still gets overlooked uh, quite a lot, especially mm -hmm. in these mega deals. And, um, you know, of course, we do the C-suite hot seat show together as well. And quite a few of the CEOs there have talked about exactly this, that how important the company culture is in general, but especially when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, and that to them is the first thing they look for. But yeah. I think the more important thing to look out for is all the investment that's coming into the uh, industry. And we have so much private equity money just flowing into the industry. Mm -hmm. And that is not new, but especially in the last two years and in the last year, it's just it seems like it was nonstop. On the one hand, we have this crazy mergers and acquisitions wave ongoing. It's kind of been driven into a frenzy almost. And then on the other hand, it's all this PE investment coming in. And that'll be really interesting to watch to see what kind of effect that has on the industry. Because basically before, you know, you had predominantly LSPs buying each other and usually the big ones buying the smaller ones for mm -hmm. clients or, you know, geography or any like other reasons like maybe to solidify their position and more like yeah. strategic reasons. And then now we've, we first of all had all these mega deals like SDL and RWS, but also Amplexer and Accolade or Ayuno mm -hmm. and SCI, all the really Argos big ones. Zynga. Yeah, exactly. So really big ones merging. And then we have all this PE money coming in now that on the one hand allows LSPs, of course, to, to do stuff with the money, which is great. Mm -hmm. But with the crux, of course, that uh, investors also want to see returns. Right? So it'll be interesting to see what kind of effect that will have because there's a bit of pressure behind that, of course, as well. Like if you have the, uh, more money now, you can maybe hire better people and also mm -hmm. maybe in some cases steal some of the good ones from the top, which was usually the other way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, we'll we'll see where the knock-on effect will be there. But it's also a great confirmation um, that investors really believe in the growth opportunities in the industry. And it's really nice to see the recognition. Ever since the late 80s, early 90s, it's been clear to the people in the industry how important it is and that it's been underappreciated, underutilized, mm -hmm. especially with the increasingly global environment that we're in. To see it now finally take shape in this way is a relief. But I know that there's also some people out there that are like, well, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I feel like especially, you know, if you look at the last two years with the um, pandemic, where basically the, the the world economy has been suffering, but our industry has been growing. 
Yeah, and right. so it, it seems also a bit like a confirmation that, you know, other industries were going down. And so more investment mm -hmm. came into our industry as it was showing how resilient it is. And I'm seeing more and more that language services in general are going more mainstream. It's a really mm -hmm. big focus on the end user. Not that it was never not about the end user, but it's going more in that direction, like way more focus on that. Like more people are exposed to this. I think on the one hand, for example, the Zoom boom, yeah. Like mm -hmm. more and more people are using remote simultaneous interpreting now. People had never used it, any kind of interpreting before. They weren't even aware of this. Right. And I'm talking about multilingual captions all the time. All, I assume at this stage, have different streaming platforms that we're using. And there's more original content being created. And so people are being a bit more aware of the whole mm -hmm. subtitling side. And these are just some examples. But I feel like in general, language services are finally also becoming more of a conversation. I wanted to look over the news of the past week a little bit with you. And mm -hmm. first we'll delve into a couple of the articles that we published at multilingual.com. Sounds good. So because of your background in journalism and uh, conference interpreting, I was curious what you thought of the article on the Creole interpreting efforts in Western Australia. I don't oh, know if you read it. I did, but, yeah. Um, yeah, so about two or three weeks ago, we saw a video. The video was widely shared within the language industry of the Australian politician Mark McGowan to disseminate COVID-19 related information to Aboriginal people living in the state of Western Australia. And a lot of people, I think, misunderstood it and therefore were harshly critical. And the article that we wrote takes an entirely different angle and says, if you're critical of this effort, it probably shows more than anything that you don't understand the Creole language that well. <laughs> how did you, yeah, how, how did you feel about that? I absolutely agree with what's been uh, pointed out in the article on multilingual. And it unfortunately doesn't really surprise me that this is the first, that the first reaction of people would be like this because there's already a lot of like lack of information or a certain amount of ignorance about around languages. Indigenous languages. And, and, yeah, and yeah. especially the more rare languages and the indigenous languages. There is just not enough attention being paid to them so people don't know it as much you know and yeah. especially if the way it's often labeled as like broken english so creole in this case right. because the language ha takes a lot from english as well it would kind of make sense in a way that if you're not aware of this that you might find it insulting and saying like why are you putting this person there well that calling it english <laughs> and, and calling it broken english is derogatory if you call Absolutely. something broken yeah. 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 So uh, for me personally, I lived in Western Australia for about seven months. And so when I saw this news pop up, I was expecting to see the Aboriginal woman speaking Aborigine mm -hmm. and she wasn't. Uh, so I was confused because of that. I didn't even know that they speak Creole. And again, I don't quite understand Creole. And so I thought, what is this interpreting effort for mm -hmm. if she's not speaking the original indigenous language? Yeah, and I studied linguistics in college. In one of the courses, I remember we talked about, of course, how languages come about anyway, and new languages. And it ties in because, you know, Creole, as the name suggests, is a Creole language. It's, that's like a type of language as well, from a linguistic standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's usually what develop a lot in either uh, trade or also slavery context when yeah. people from completely different language backgrounds 
came mm -hmm. together and had to communicate in one way or another, right? And they make up this thing. It's called the pigeon language at first. Right. But then, and pigeon languages usually fall apart again. They just take like bits and pieces from both languages to sort of communicate. And then once the context is over, they're gone. But the funny thing or the interesting thing, I think, is when a child then is born into this context, they then make this pigeon language into its own fully fledged language, which is a Creole then. Yeah. And, I like um, that analogy of uh, pigeon and and fledging. Yes, <laughs> fully fledged pigeon. <laughs> yeah, and so it becomes a real um, full language that has all the vocabulary and the grammar. It just makes sense to me that maybe in this context, this there was a Creole language like that came out of um, some Aboriginal language in Australia. And mm -hmm. the people speaking English who came into Australia had to communicate somehow. <laughs> and then this language came out of it. And that, that's why there's still so much English, but like a different variety of English in it, in this language. That's interesting. And I was confused because of the term Creole and being spelled K-R-I-O-L. And I knew Creole to be some of the island English uh, off the coast of uh, Belize and other Central American countries where I spent a lot of time in my 20s. And they they are similar because they're based mm -hmm. on English, but the one is spend K-R-I-O-L and the other is C-R-E-O-L-E. Uh, and that is the one that is used in the Caribbean area mm -hmm. yeah. versus Creole in Australia. So those things are very, those distinctions are very, very fine and uh, not known by many people. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I would say, for, well, from what I know, the other um, Creole that you mentioned in the Caribbean is also a Creole language. Um, and I think what they both have in common in some way is that the, you know, these are places that were colonized by English speaking people. And then if someone's born into that, it develops into a language. I agree. I was surprised too that it's spelled like this. The same time that speaks to me mm -hmm. as a linguist very much for a sign of a Creole that it's also sp spelled differently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have another article I want to talk to you about. And mm -hmm. it's also about interpreting. And it's about the dispute over the San Remo Music Festival sign language performances. Mm -hmm. Did yeah, you watch the beautiful video? No, actually, I didn't watch the video. I only oh, saw okay. the, the, the freeze frame there in this case now. Um, but I read yeah. the article. Yeah. So in the last two years, the San Remo Music Festival, which is a giant song contest in Italy, the festival organizers offered an Italian sign language version of the festival. And it's beautiful to see an LIS interpreter conveying the message of each song. So not only the words, but also the musical elements to Italy's deaf community. And uh, it's, it's incredibly touching to watch. There's so much passion and feeling in these performances and the organization who did all of the translations into Italian sign language for all of the songs just ask for a raise after two years of doing this for the entire festival for only <laughs> 5,000 euros. And they said, nope. And he goes, okay, well, you're not getting these interpretations then. How do you feel about that amidst an ongoing conversation where sign language interpreters are beginning to fight for uh, regular language interpreters to be appreciated in the same way as sign interpreters, because 
uh, I was talking to Danielle Mader recently and she said, yeah, they get paid like $65 in the U S per hour or so, whereas a regular language interpreter would be glad with 30 to 35. Why is it different? Only because it's mandatory or because we put a higher value on it. Um, do mm -hmm. we see not being able to understand a language as less of a disability than not being able to hear? It makes sense for me, but the sign language community is actually standing up to say, well, regular language interpreters should receive more appreciation. If you're going mm -hmm. to put us in the limelight, we should also be taking them into the conversation and making sure that they're equally appreciated. How do you feel about that? Well, um, yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting and there's probably something to what you're saying that um, maybe more born out of necessity in the past that this is really the only way to communicate for um, us with people um, who are deaf or hard of hearing that maybe it was always seen more as a necessity and a real, you know, access to um, to all the facets of life. And then also, um, from what I know from having done some research into American sign language interpreting, mm -hmm. uh, I know, and I also spoke to a few um, British sign language interpreters, the community of sign language interpreters is a lot more uh, outspoken and also they really stick together as well. Like they're really strongly advocating um, for their services and like they they don't take a lot of shit, to be honest, from people. <laughs> and they know the value they bring. And mm -hmm. of course, it's not like super easy for them either. I'm not saying that. But they've been like really advocating and sticking together for a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's also a lot of um, kind of supply and demand coming into this. Like mm -hmm. you have different already, even in spoken language interpreting, of course, there's different rates for different languages. If you're a Spanish interpreter, Spanish English in the US, you get paid less than if it's Brazilian Portuguese in English, you know, because mm -hmm. they're just more rare. And that's just the way it is then, you know, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, I also know that the sign language interpreters, they usually have a um, very close relationship to the deaf community. It's not that easy from what I've learned talking to these interpreters as well and to some deaf people as well um, to come into the community. Um, they don't, there's a lot of distrust um, from deaf people to hearing people also uh, because of a lot of discrimination in the past, like horrible discrimination that I only just learned about as well. And so like usually the sign language interpreters are real, like close with the community and the community also advocates for them. And mm -hmm. so it's like, and they of course have a lot more rights too. Um, so where I think often in spoken language interpreting, there's also, even in the US, from what I know, where there are, you have great language access laws, uh, a lot of people aren't even aware that they have this right and that they can claim it as well. So yeah. whereas all the deaf people, they know and they claim it as well, as they should, of course, as everyone should. Um, I like that yeah. the sign language interpreters are standing up for their colleagues. But yeah, it's just it's hard to say because there's so many different types of interpreting. Uh, there's so much misinformation about interpreting. Name a few major myths about mm -hmm. interpreting. Well, maybe that people think uh, an easy one is that people think that translation and interpreting is the same. You know, they call it just like um, right. But they need a translator, and you need, of course, they're related in the sense that you need to have the language skills in both yes. but they are very very different basically for a translator you need to be a writer and for an interpreter you need to be a public speaker uh, and, and it's immediate it's immediate exactly it's right. instant you can't think about it when you're in the community interpreting side as well 
if you're interpreting in a hospital or I talk to someone in a pediatric hospital yeah, for like terminally ill children and she is interpreting there every day looking at the like all the misery around her mm-hmm. yeah and you're carrying that with you you're in the middle there you be you're conveying the emotions of those people interpreting is a lot more about dealing directly with what's going on inside a person rather than like you know translating a manual or yeah. a novel even you know but it's like about what people are feeling and mm-hmm. uh, saying and you're conveying that in the first person as well so it affects you quite heavily sometimes as well yeah, and, and I think part of uh, another myth or what people are not realizing is that it's not just the time you're paying the interpreter. It's not just for like in the moment. Like if you're looking at the San Remo interpreter, she mm-hmm. would not just be interpreting there and that's her work. You know, there's all this prep beforehand. Usually interpreters have to learn the topic. In this case, now this one, one she had to look at all the song texts and translate them in a way that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, interpret that life. And I guess she was doing something called, we call it interpretainment as well. <laughs> More than just oh, interpreting like material. So you, you mentioned uh, hospital interpreting, which I'm going to dig up this article, mm-hmm. which uh, really, you know, was was somewhat entertaining in a macabre way. Um, oh, I know which one. January 22nd. Yeah, the partial amputation mm-hmm. of medical language access concerns. Medical language access, it's a big deal. It's a huge yeah. deal. This thing happened years ago. Uh, he received a partial amputation in November 2017 in a Tennessee hospital who did not provide him with an ASL interpreter, American Sign Language interpreter. Yeah, had a sore foot, went to the hospital. They're like, take two aspirins, basically. Sent him home, came back later uh, with horrible looking foot. And there was at one point an ASL interpreter provided, but it was over video. And, uh, you know, maybe it was blurry. Maybe there was a lag. There's not a lot of detail. Uh, They sent him home with tremendous painkillers and then later on had to have part of his leg amputated. So, of course, maybe the amputation would have happened anyways, but it sounds like it could have been prevented, or at least there's a great chance it could have been prevented had he been provided with a proper ASL interpreter at the beginning. The doctors couldn't get a good understanding of his healthcare needs or his pain levels or maybe what had happened that prompted the foot pain. So it was a problem that was really, um, you would have anticipated that the doctors needed the interpreter more even than the patient. So they did not provide themselves with the service that they needed to adequately provide medical care. Like a really, really big chunk of the diagnosis is based on basically the conversation that the doctor has with the patient, right? Where the patient describes exactly what you're saying, the the symptoms and uh, the the history of how this happened. It's, of course, not the only thing they base their diagnosis on, but it's a very, very big part. So you would think that (laughs) having access to proper communication with this patient or other patients uh, would be crucial. Oh, goodness. I want to wrap this up and say uh, thank you so much for being my first guest on the Yet Unnamed show. Maybe mm-hmm. people who are listening in can send me some suggestions. So um, my name is Marjolein Groot-Nibbelink, or as the Americans like to say, Marjolein Groot-Nibbelink. 
<laughs> I am the publisher of Multilingual Magazine and the CEO of Multilingual Media. Happy to be your host. Sarah, this is going to be a podcast only. So this is going to be exclusive to the podcast. So please ask people to subscribe. We're on all of the podcast uh, hosting platforms. And uh, yeah, please join us as we uh, delve into more topics next week with another guest. Thank you, Sarah. Good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Dafi is in. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I can't reply in Dutch except I know Dewey. Dewey is the best. <laughs> yeah. uh, basically, just a phonetical expression of enthusiasm. <laughs> you just go Dewey. Like yes. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Localization today. To subscribe to Multilingual Magazine. Go to multilingual.com slash subscribe.